Welcome to the Blind Buy Podcast, you forever Brendans. If you're a brand new listener to this podcast, I would recommend going to some earlier episodes because this particular episode is directed more towards regular listeners. Some episodes I'd recommend would be DeVito's Teapot, Brando's Dartboard, Yorty Ahern, Malibu Castle Bastards, A Spike Lee Giant Full of Baldy, Rectum Pen Pals, um, whatever, any of the older episodes. I don't, um, I give the podcast unorthodox names, that's kind of how we do it. But you're more than welcome if you're a brand new listener. How have you been? I have been having tons of fun. I've been having tons of fun with my Twitch stream. I mentioned to you last week that all this week I was going to stream on Twitch every single night. And I did. I made a promise to myself that I was going to do it every single night. I was going to do it to try and raise money for a charity organisation called Massey who are a charity for people living in direct provision and for asylum seekers. So I said, fuck it. I'm going to go on to Twitch every single night at 9.30 and I'm going to stream for an hour or longer and ask people to donate money. And I did, and it worked, and people donated. So thank you to everyone who helped out there. And I think I'm going to... I'm definitely going to stream again this week, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, 9.30pm, probably a bit longer. What I'm doing on the streams is I'm playing a game called Red Dead Redemption, but I'm not really playing it. It's much more of a relaxing podcast hug type space where it's me kind of talking. I dress my character up as if he was in the IRA in the 1920s and wandered around some woods and interfered with bushes and... It's different. It's I'm enjoying it as a creative space. Red Dead Redemption is this game that has this huge open replica of America in the 1890s. And I just wander the wilderness. I wander the wilderness. I try and avoid a conflict if I can. I try and invite shooting people unless they shoot me. And in general, it's I'm using the environment as a place to create stories. And to talk with people who are watching. So twitch.tv forward slash the blind by podcast. I'm going to start getting into streaming pretty regularly for two reasons. Number one, um, I, ca- I, I can't do gigs because of the goblin of strange and uncertain times. So my gigs are gone. So I've got all this free time in my hands. And it's genuinely really exciting. It is really exciting for me to now have this space which is new and off territory as well, creatively, and I now have this space to do whatever the fuck I want in front of a live audience and in the comfort zone of my studio. I'm also doing live music. I'm considering doing meditation. There's loads of stuff I can do. So it's lots of fun. Twitch.tv forward slash the blind by podcast. Give me an old follow. So what I want to cover in this week's podcast is uh, I have a... I suppose it's 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 kind of a hot take, but it's more of there's an element of hot take, but it's much more like a philosophical assessment of the current time. 
informed by psychology, a philosophical assessment of the current times, of the, the goblin of strange and uncertain times, a philosophical assessment of where we all are right now as a society um, regarding coronavirus. For me to, to make sense of the zeitgeist, to make sense of the current zeitgeist and, and to share it with you. And I also want to speak about why um, why I haven't done a mental health podcast in quite some time. So you might have noticed I haven't done a podcast about mental health in about six weeks, longer maybe. Um, and I, I like to do regular mental health podcasts. I like to, for, to, for myself and for you, I like, I have a rigorous mental health regime which is informed by psychology and I use this for my own emotional well-being to keep myself in check and I like to share it with ye I like to share my experience with ye because I know from messages that I receive that it's actually really helpful for, for ye and then from my point of view I feel ethically okay doing it because I'm not a qualified fucking psychologist but I am a qualified person in applying psychology to myself to improve my own mental health. I'm qualified to speak about my experiences and to point you in directions that work for me. So I'm ethically okay with that. So I like to do it every so often. But I haven't been doing it recently because of the coronavirus, the goblin of strange and uncertain times. Because when I do a mental health podcast and you're listening and you're engaging with it, even though it can be quite pleasurable, it can be pleasurable to go to an internal part of yourself where you're thinking about ways of how you behave or how you view yourself. When you go to what's known as an introspective place, right? Introspective is when you when you look inwards. When you go to an introspective place, you kind of, like anyone who's been to counselling or therapy, you'll know that often a counsellor or therapist will begin a counselling and therapy session with what's known as a grounding exercise, where you ground yourself, you sit in your body, you sit with what emotions are in there before you enter the introspection of a therapeutic environment. So, I didn't feel that it would be safe for me to be doing mental health podcasts that require you to be introspective during the coronavirus business, especially the start of it. So the past few weeks for me and this podcast, they've been about distraction. My job has been to speak to you about art, fun things, things that ask you to go to a, a cognitive, enjoyable, immersive place um, to provide you with a distraction and entertainment. And the reason is, like I said, this is how I view the coronavirus pan uh, pandemic on, on a psychological level. <clears throat> when it happened, I viewed it, the, the lens that I viewed coronavirus and its impact on all of us, on our mental health, I viewed it through the lens of grief psychology. Okay? Grief is... You think of grief and you go, all right, when someone close to you dies... Yes, but grief and grief psychology isn't just that. Grief is is 
Grief is a painful response to a sudden loss or change that you didn't ask for. And that's what coronavirus is. We didn't ask for it. It was very sudden. There was a huge loss. You know, what do you lose? You lose your sense of freedom. You lose your sense of certainty. Humans love certainty and we don't like change. We enjoy patterns. We don't like it when patterns are interrupted. We seek patterns. Like, simple as this, like, coronavirus started, I, I, I actually can't even tell you. Was it two months ago? What is it now? It's the middle of June. March, April, May. Let's just say we're three months into it. That three months ago feels like a fucking year, lads. I, I was in Australia in January. It feels like last year. And there's a reason for that because it, our entire pattern of living has been fucked up. Every day has been filled with anxiety and uncertainty and it's overwhelming. And as a result, you're not going into autopilot anymore. You're continually on edge and that's why March feels like three fucking years ago. So within the context of all that, I didn't want to be talking about depression, anxiety asking ye to look internally because I speak about defence mechanisms a lot, right? Defence mechanisms are seen in psychology as, as negative things in general. right? When you, when, when you bring up defence mechanism, it's seen as negative. Defence mechanisms can be negative. They can, uh, they can steer us in, in ways of living that causes pain or interfere with our relationships with other people. And be, they can be the, the source of problems in our lives, but they also exist for a reason and aren't necessarily always like that. Defence mechanism, it's, it's basically... It's when your, your brain tries to protect you from a truth by distorting your perception of what that truth is. That, that's what a defence mechanism is. Denial is a defence mechanism. If you embarrass yourself in public and when you get embarrassed, what happens is you get furiously angry at anyone who looks like they're laughing. That's the, the shame and embarrassment is so great that your brain doesn't let you feel it. So it goes for the easier emotion of, of projecting anger. That's a defense mechanism. Defense mechanisms are also useful because they can help us to cope in the short term. And most of us have been using defence mechanisms for the past three months to just live. That's why when I did the mental health podcast about coronavirus, all I was talking about was the most you can ask of yourself is to cope. That's it. Day by day to cope and look for meaning. Because that's, it's grief. I'd say the same thing to somebody who lost their job. The same thing to someone who lost their dog. The same thing to someone who lost a parent. Grief is, it's unique to all of us and there's no right or wrong way to do it. And when you're in the experience of grief, you have to just focus on coping. On a day-by-day -day basis, you cope. So that was the message I had. And what we've all seen over the past three months, the world is... From a socio-cultural point of view, or a psychosocial point of view, we 
we've all been going through collective grief and grief has five stages right in grief psychology in general there's five stages and they don't necessarily have to be in this sequence so the five stages of grief are denial anger bargaining depression and acceptance here's how i see the 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 sequence with coronavirus of how these things have played out number one denial so when coronavirus first became known to us in ireland anyway there was the, it manifested mostly as denial and minimalization oh there's some disease over in china oh we've seen swine flu before it'll be nothing we've seen this before that was the initial onset of denial then the second most obvious onset of denial when it became very real not just in ireland but as a phenomenon of what you'd refer to as western countries the first response was panic buying people buying up toilet paper buying up loads of shops being empty of bread and toilet paper and from a distance that can look like panicking or hoarding and there was an element of that but mostly that wasn't the case I mean I remember people with shopping trolleys full of very non-essential things Pringles, shit like that. It wasn't people necessarily stockpiling their houses with food because they thought they'd have to board up their windows. It was people under the sudden shock and change of the grief of coronavirus and not knowing how severe it would be. Under that shock, what people did is they denied the fear and terror by responding to a set of behaviours that we in Western society have been conditioned to believe are soothing, by which I mean consumerism. If you are raised in a Western country under capitalism, since birth you are presented with advertising non-stop and advertising and consumerism in our culture is not about selling you or advertising products based on your actual needs. It's about selling and advertising to you they're selling you a better version of yourself so from birth our engagement with advertising isn't I need that pair of pants it's this advert tells me that that pants will make me cooler or more whole or this soap will make me a better human being so our relationship with consumerism it's it's a religious relationship advertising psychologically is a type of religious iconography that offers us salvation okay and that salvation is the opportunity to be a better human being better than what we are so the panic buying of the initial stage of the coronavirus it's people feeling terrified and the only thing we know how to do to cope is to consume 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 Give money, receive products, receive a small dopamine hit and then achieve a sense of control. But ultimately, you're engaging in denial. That, that's mass denial. There's a pandemic. Great. I need nine boxes of Pringles and 64 bog rolls. That's denial. That's finding out that someone you love has got a terminal illness and you spend the first night down in three bottles of wine. That's what that is. That's the, the first initial response to a shock. So that there is the denial stage of grief as a response to coronavirus pandemic. And usually the next response is anger. But I think 
with coronavirus, anger wasn't the next response. The second stage of grief, it went from denial to bargaining. That's when the conspiracy theorists came out. That's when... I mean, people have fallen out with family members in Ireland over this. Conspiracy theorists saying that this was a pandemic, You know, denying experts. Trying to... Like, I know a conspiracy theory sounds like denial, but it's not. It's, It's actually... It's bargaining. A conspiracy theorist is trying to bargain with the truth because they're not comfortable with uncertainty. So they need to find a degree of... Uncer- or a degree of certainty regardless of whether it's true or not so bargaining's like um, a conspiracy theorist isn't accepting that like there's a virus out there and it's killing some people and you can't actually catch it and instead the conspiracy theorists are saying uh, if it is real it was made in a laboratory um, it's actually 5G it's, it's made by the internet and that's what it is these people are, are bargaining. That's that's the bargaining stage of grief. It's an advanced form of denial. Then came anger and depression. And I think anger and depression in the grief stages of coronavirus happened at once. Um I don't I don't separate the pandemic from the recent protests we're seeing all over the world. Not just the Black Lives Matter protests, but people ripping down statues, people protesting to defend statues, uh, the far right fucking people out, like the first ones were the militia people in America protesting against social distancing. There's been a lot of very heated out on the streets anger, which I haven't seen, I've never seen the scale of it in the West before and the closest thing I have ever seen to it would be the what's called the Arab Spring of 2011. And I'm not saying this to minimise something like the Black Lives Matter protest. Um, I'm not. That was an anger as a result of injustice against the black community, which would have happened with or without coronavirus. But the protests do have to be viewed within the context of there being an unprecedented massive global pandemic which we haven't seen before. You have to view all of it within that context and backdrop and history is going to view the, view all those protests within that context and backdrop too a bit like brilliant Spike Lee film Do the Right Thing which is about racial tensions in Brooklyn against the backdrop of a, a particularly hot and irritating summer the complete removal of freedom that all people are experiencing the removal of certainty the removal of uh, the lack of leadership all of this stuff creates a a tinderbox of anger which makes civil unrest easier to explode within those conditions so with the ease of lockdown now that we're seeing the past week in particular in Ireland where there's cars back out in the street people are now talking about going back to pubs with the ease of lockdown with the stage of grief that we're entering into now is acceptance the coronavirus isn't a scary, terrifying monster anymore. We know what it looks like now. Like the early stages of coronavirus when things were being locked down and we were being asked not to leave our house. One of the most traumatising things about that for me is picking up the phone, speaking to somebody I know 
And when I'm communicating with them, I'm not speaking with the same person because they're trying to hide a sense of terror in their voice. When you're speaking to someone you know and there was a trepidation and, and their voice was shaky and it felt deeply uncomfortable and you're trying to behave normally but this terror exists in your own voice and in the other person's voice. Back in March, that was that was quite traumatic. That was quite traumatic and when that was happening I could feel my defence mechanisms kicking in. I could feel my defence mechanisms going, you can't focus on that now, you must only focus on coping on a day-to-day basis. And that's when I did that podcast. But now we're moving to acceptance. I don't feel I need to distract you anymore. If you even look at the news, the news isn't reporting as heavily on it anymore. We're we're, um, moving into what's referred to as the new normal. The new normal is acceptance. It's... Like, biggest impact of coronavirus for me is, just for me personally, I'm not too worried about my health. I've got a bit of asthma, but I'm going to do everything I can to not get it. But I wouldn't be too worried if I did get it. I'd take my chances. Big worry for me is loss of livelihood. I work in the entertainment industry. Entertainment industry is fucked. Entertainment industry and travel and tourist industry are possibly the two biggest hit industries by all of this I'd imagine Um, can't do gigs don't know when I can do gigs again can't do television because you can't make television under social distancing even my fucking book my paperback and my book came out three weeks ago they can't sell any copies of it because the bookshops weren't open so that was a big shock for me but now I'm moving to a place of acceptance I can't change it it's outside of my control so I'm saying well I'm an artist I'm creative what can I do within these massive restrictions to use my creativity to earn a living and it might even be fun. So I'm 100% in a place of acceptance now. Um, And all of us in society, that's where we're going. It's the new normal. We're moving out, opening things up slowly and we all now accept there's this thing called coronavirus. It's not a big scary goblin anymore. It's an annoying thing which will affect how we're going to have to behave going forward it changes how we behave and we don't know for how long but that's how it is now that's acceptance so in light of that it's that's why it's okay now for, I think to speak about mental health again that's why I think it's safe to be introspective I I've been I was like avoiding meditation a little bit at the start of coronavirus because I didn't want to go too deeply inside I needed the defence mechanism to cope every single day to just get on with it but now I'm moving to acceptance it's gone back to how I felt before the pandemic just there's restrictions on how I must behave and my behaviour doesn't determine my internal world behaviour doesn't determine my worth or how I feel I'm feeling normal in shops now again you know I'm wearing my face mask I'm wiping down the basket before I put my hand in it I'm using hand sanitizer. all of these responses are becoming autonomous and I'm not afraid anymore going to the shop is no longer unpleasant I'm just doing it now in a different way so what I'm going to do after the ocarina pause is get to kind of the hot take my coronavirus hot take now obviously I'm not going to do some irresponsible fucking conspiracy theory shit It's more of a hot take on society and culture as it relates to this pandemic. And it's it's fun and interesting. So let's have the ocarina pause. But 
it is not the Ocarina Pause this week because in preparation for my live streams where I'm creating, I'm making music on the fly on Twitch. In preparation for that, I got myself some new percussion instruments and I also dug up my old percussion instruments. Basically like tambourines, shakers, loads of little instruments that I can use with my hands to make a rhythm. And I found this fucking instrument that I forgot that I had. And it's a very specific instrument called a flexitone. And it's a Latin percussion instrument. I don't fully know the history of it. It's a Latin percussion instrument, a niche instrument. And for some reason, this instrument became an integral part of the sound of early 90s G-Funk hip-hop for about four years. And I can't understand why. I can't understand the answer. So we're going to have, instead of the ocarina pause, this week we're going to have the flexitone pause. Right? Where I'm going to just play this strange instrument. The pause, if you don't know, there's going to be an advert. I don't know what the advert is going to be. I haven't a clue. Who gives a shit? Right? But it's going to be placed inside this pause. So I, I do little musical pauses so that you're not alarmed. So here's the flexitone pause. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What a queer instrument. So that was the flexitone pause. Last week, I I won't say who, but I turned down a rather large sponsor because it didn't, didn't sit with me ethically. Didn't want to promote him. Simple as that. I'm entitled to that. So this podcast is 100% independent. Every so often, I might have a sponsor for like a week or two, but... A lot of the times how podcasts survive is they get a full sponsor to sponsor them for like a year or two years. A big company, whatever. I don't have that. I kind of don't want this. Um, I, I, I do. I have great difficulty getting sponsors and when sponsors come through, I find myself turning a lot of them down because I just don't agree with what they're doing. And most importantly... I don't ever want anyone, a sponsor who's paying my way, saying to me, I don't like the content you're making. The, the whole reason why I enjoy doing this podcast, 
this podcast is a space for failure and exploration. And I never think what will be popular, what will people like. What I think is what do I care about deeply today? What 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 ideas are really interesting me right now? And I want to talk about them regardless of whether people like them. I'm doing what I want to do. Last week's podcast was about the evolution of a moth's wings and how that contrasts with an 18th century painter. If I had a a sponsor who was paying for this podcast for six months, they'd be perfectly within their rights to turn around to me and say, stop talking about moth's wings. Who the fuck wants to hear that? And they'd say to me, you know what, blind boy? We're happy with the amount of people listening to your podcast, but we'd like to double that. We'd like to double your listeners. So here's a list of trending topics right now on the internet and you have to do podcasts about these trending topics because we know that if you do them about these topics more people will click on it and I'd say no that's not what I'm about and then they'd say I'm really sorry but I don't think we can continue sponsoring you and then I'm fucked and that's what I'm trying to get away from that's what working television is like that's been a bit hard no no that's most of my experience Someone's fronting a lot of money to make a TV show and when they tell you that something isn't right then creative control goes out the window and now I'm making something I don't enjoy I don't care about I'm not passionate about. I'm 100% passionate about this podcast. I fucking love doing it. I, I, I can't wait every week to figure out what weird shit can I talk about that's really interesting to me and that I'm passionate about and then to try and communicate my passion for that to ye as entertainment so the reason I'm able to do it is because the podcast is funded by you the listener through the Patreon page that's how I want to keep it I'd like to keep it Patreon funded for complete and utter fucking independence so if as well as that obviously as well as I've mentioned many fucking podcasts before coronavirus is after making shit of my job I can't do gigs can't do TV nothing like that so this is my sole source of income um, I rely 100% on this podcast. It's my full-time job. It's a huge amount of work. So if you're listening to the podcast and you enjoy it and you can afford to give me the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month, please do. It genuinely makes a huge difference. It keeps me going, all right? If you can't afford that, though, don't be beating yourself up over it, all right? Someone else is going to pay for you to listen. That's how I want to do it. Completely independent, I talk about what I want to talk about. But at the same time, I'm not putting it behind a paywall and excluding people if they can't afford it. But if you can afford it, a cup of coffee or a pint, seriously, please do. It makes a huge difference. If you can't afford it and you want to support it, word them out. Tell your friends about this podcast. Share it on social media. Uh, Fucking leave a good review on iTunes or whatever. Subscribe to it. All this carry on. Also as well, look, my Twitch channel. That's going to be a lot of crack. Start a Twitch account and please join me on Twitch. Twitch.tv forward slash the Blind Boy Podcast. Currently I'm going to be on it three times a week. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Um, doing something quite similar to this podcast but live every night. And it's great crack. So that that was a particularly long one this week. The reason is I just I wanted to make the point. Because some people... Say say to me, oh, people donate to your Patreon like it's a charity. And it's like, no, people support me on Patreon to 
pay for the work that I do. They're paying for work that I do. If you're a patron of mine, you're paying me to work to make the podcast, but also you're paying for someone else who can't afford it to listen. And I think that's, under capitalism, that's pretty sound and fair. That really sits nicely with me. I I like it and it's ethical. And also one more thing, as a thank you to the people who are patrons of the podcast, once a month I pick one person, one patron at random, and they will get sent in the post a hand drawing, one of a kind hand drawing for me as a thank you. So one patron picked at random, all right? Patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast. So part two. One thing I'm really fascinated by is looking at how individual countries respond to the coronavirus based on the, the history of those countries and how the identity and history of a country informs it. For example, America. The American response to coronavirus has been atrocious. The In Ireland, we're, we're just recoiling in horror. That, I mean, look, Trump flat out is, is just saying conspiracy theories. Trump right now is getting into a stage where he's paranoid about the election in November. One of Trump's huge strategies is rallies. He likes to get rallies of people physically in a space together so he can speak publicly. That's a huge weapon of Trump's these rallies that he does Trump how is Trump going to do rallies in an environment social distancing he can't he doesn't give a fuck he's going to do them anyway Trump is going ahead with his rallies and I think there's like a disclaimer or something to the people who are coming where it's like you're coming to my rally at your own risk but Trump obviously is going to subtly find a way to say to them that social distancing is bullshit because he's having the and this is the fucking president trying to get re-elected killing his own followers you have governors of states saying, just refusing social distancing or any any response to the coronavirus, saying that the, the cure can't be worse than the disease. Then you've got the people of America viewing the wearing of a mask as, as an attack on their freedom. And it's shocking for anyone on the outside. We, we collectively go, how are you all so stupid? How are you all acting so clearly in this ridiculous fashion ignoring a virus when the statistics are showing that it is devastating the country how do you continue to behave like this and I think the answer is in to understand American culture you have to un- you have to contextualize it within frontierism America was founded upon what's called frontierism so America was a country that was colonized quite late all these Europeans moved over and this huge mass of land and people were basically told just keep pushing forward, move forward through the forest and the wilderness, kill everything that stands in your way and take your piece of land. That's frontierism. That is the founding tenet of what America is, is founded upon. A very greedy expansionist form of of looting land where people took what was theirs and key to this taking is is violence violence on the environment violence on the indigenous people not only through the physical violence of killing indigenous American people to take their land but 
also the spread of disease. A, a, a huge amount of Native American people were wiped out by diseases that were brought from Europe, all spread in the interest of frontierism. A common cold taking out entire tribes or the flu. What frontierism also did to the American psyche is that when Americans would go out into the go out west and take this land like areas like Montana they had this intense sense of of freedom but because America was so large one of the most difficult enemies of frontierism was federalism there was huge resistance to the idea of a centrally controlled America a federally controlled from Washington controlled America. There was always historical resistance to this from frontierists who were out taking their land. And the deep distrust of power and the government that you see in America and this belief of civilian militias, you can trace all its roots to this frontierist culture. And it was like ex-Europeans who were drunk on freedom who were straight up like trying to leave in the European countries, leaving what they viewed to, to be the oppression of the church, the oppression of monarchies or aristocrats, or the oppression of nobles. And what do you see today in America's coronavirus response? This completely disjointed, deep distrust of not only the government, but of experts. And it's chaos. It's the idea of a mask is seen as restrictive and also the normalised view of diseases are part of frontierism. Diseases will kill the poor, will kill the disenfranchised. I'm out to get mine because that's what America is built upon. And then you move to the British response and that you look at the British response to coronavirus and it's when I say both America and Britain, it's messages coming from the top down, from the government down, but also the contract of consent that's engaged upon between the people and the government. So in America, right, obviously there's there's people in America who are like, wear a mask, behave yourself, listen to experts. That is the case. But it certainly doesn't seem like the fucking majority. There is a dialogue of consent occurring between Trump at the top who's a fucking quack talking about fake cures asking people to drink bleach and then people on the bottom with guns because people are asking them to wear masks that's a consensual culture right there that's a system and also the one thing with like frontierism is over there's no more of America to take over and claim as your own America's claimed but that attitude of go forth and manifest your own destiny and take what's there and it's all out there to be taken it stopped being about land or undiscovered territory and going west and it became about capitalism money anti-government take as much money manifest the destiny to be completely capitalistic and take all that money for you and fuck anyone else and that's why it's okay for the president of america to say the cure can't be worse than the disease and the cure as far as he's concerned, is to shut down the economy. To shut down the economy is worse than lots of people dying. And then with Britain, 
which is also a country that has managed all this terribly. You look at what Britain have done and you have to view it in terms of Britain's history. Britain's initial response, which was absolutely idiotic and irresponsible, has to be viewed in the context of Britain being a country that once owned most of the world. And the rich Tory aristocratic cunts at the top of Britain, Boris Johnson and all his pals, when coronavirus became a thing, instead of listening to the the World Health Organization, instead of looking at what's happening in China, China who, who had the coronavirus before Britain, instead of looking and learning, Britain decided, sure we used to rule all these people, why would we listen or look at them? We're British, we're going to come up with our own response. Because we're the fucking best. We used to run this world. What do you mean listen to the Chinese? What do you mean listen to the WHO or the Germans? Fuck them. We're British. So we're going to go with this thing called hard immunity. Because it came from some British scientists. And they made that error. And it was only one week worth of an error. And it fucked the whole game up. And now Britain's fucked. And their response... The Yanks have got that selfish frontierist response. And then the British are like, that's how you respond when you used to own the world. You don't watch, you don't listen, and you're incredibly arrogant. And most importantly, fuck the poor. The British Empire, the great trick that the British monarchy and the aristocracy and the people with money always managed to pull on their own poor people was, how can we make our poor people fight the poor people from the other countries so we can take that country how can we make them die for a vision that we sell them and that's what herd immunity is when when Boris Johnson was talking about herd immunity he's basically saying how about everybody gets sick because we all know what that means it means that the poorest and the oldest people are going to die but young healthy people especially the ones with lots of money and the best healthcare they'll be fine so that's what hard immunity is and hard immunity is no different to there's this place called China or India and we'd like to take it for their spices and we're going to send a bunch of poor people over there to die by fighting the poor people in India and we're going to convince our poor people that that's the right thing to do that right there is the underlying philosophy of hard immunity and then we come to Ireland and this is where this is where my hot take is and this is the thing that's been kind of grinding me for a while and making me want to understand the Irish response. So I would I I think the Irish response, the response of the Irish people to coronavirus has been has been positive. It's it's now if like where I am in Limerick, it's been effectively eradicated from the community like three weeks ago. The cases in Ireland are quite low. The other day we had zero deaths. It it appears that the curve appears to be flattened and it appears to be really going down and, and to completely eradicate it from the community. So and and it's also been kind of on target too. We we've met the targets of the phases. We didn't have a massive surge. Um the plans were for there to be massive field hospitals and morgues. We didn't need them. Ireland responded quite well. We responded well to I don't want to say the word instructions. That's the interesting thing. I don't want to say instructions. So, how do I view the Irish response to coronavirus? If I'm 
measuring the American response in terms of a history of frontierism and then the Brits in a history of being a colonial power, what do I do with Ireland? Now, naturally, I always lean towards post-colonialism. You'll hear me using that word loads when I'm speaking about Ireland and the Irish condition and how we view ourselves and how we view our place in the world. You have to go with post-colonialism, which is for 800 years we were ruled by the British and we were taught to be lesser than them. So we're only... The North is still controlled by Britain and the 26 counties have only been free since the 1920s, which is 100 years. So you have to view still, you have to view yourself as... You always have to be vigilant of what part of our politics, what part of how we relate to each other, how do we view ourselves. Are we still dysfunctionally thinking of ourselves as being ruled by the Brits? And sometimes people will say to me, will you shut the fuck up about the Brits and move on? And it's like, you can't. No, you can't. It's it's speaking about the Irish condition and, and the contemporary Irish attitude you have to view it in in terms of your childhood. Just like if you're dealing with your own mental health, you have to look at your family of origin. You have to look at where was your place in the family? Were the oldest, were you the youngest? What was your relationship with your mother? What was your relationship with your father? You have to view these things and your earliest childhood experiences if you're to understand your adult behaviour so that you can eradicate it with post-colonial behaviour you got to be aware of it because it's damaging and you can't we're no longer a colony of Britain so therefore you can't continue to behave as if you are or to allow any of the insecurities or 800 years of being told that your culture is shit and that you don't deserve to live that has a lasting impact even to this generation and you have to be aware of it so that you can change it and don't allow it to define yourself. So I'm analysing the Irish response to coronavirus and immediately alarm bells are going, right, is this post-colonial? Is this post-colonial? But I'm not seeing post-colonialism. That's what's interesting me. So the Irish government response to coronavirus, it's been very strange, right? First off, it hasn't really been authoritarian. The guards brought in certain rules about, you know, if, if you were taking the piss out of social distancing, the guards did have emergency powers. But in general, the government has been asking us to comply rather than telling us. They've been asking. And the tone is what I'm interested in. The tone, the government treats us like children. It's infantilizing. But we don't resist the infantilization, we find comfort in it and look up and it's quite fucking odd and it's not post-colonial. Our response is is post-Catholic because when the British left, like put put it this way, the terrible history that Ireland has with, with Catholicism and the power that Ireland handed to the Catholic Church for the majority of the 20th century that you have to view that on that's post-colonial activity it's Ireland all of a sudden achieved that the south of Ireland achieved independence political independence from Britain and rather than have true we'll say republican egalitarianism we went no 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 no. 800 years of being ruled no 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 we're not ready to actually have self-determination 
not a fucking hope. We got to give this to the church. We give all the power to the church and let them rule and control and abuse us. Similarly to how the Brits is. So that's a post-colonial mentality. But the church collapsed in the 90s with the the sex abuse scandals. when we like The horrors of the Magdalene laundries and the abuse of children. Ireland had to just go, no. And also joining the EU. So I view the, the coronavirus response as a post-Catholic thing. And I'll tell you why. There's a strange way in throughout the coronavirus how we all as a people consented with the government knowingly and deliberately not giving us all the information to keep us safe. Now by which I mean at the start when coronavirus cases started to show in Ireland the government would never say or the HSE would never say where the cases were. For weeks they would say there's been three new coronavirus cases in the West. There's been three new coronavirus cases in the East. And we collectively, that's strange, right? We as adult people are entitled to say to the government, that's not good enough. I want to know if they're in Dublin or Limerick or Cork. This East-West business, that's not cutting it for me. I'm a fucking adult. Let me know where the coronavirus cases are, please. That's the adult response. It's what most countries were getting. In a different country, it's like, these are in Milan these are in like in Italy but in Ireland it was regional and right there the government is saying we have we know something we we can we know where they are we we know where the coronavirus cases are but we're not going to tell you we're not going to tell you for your safety and Irish people just went that's okay just keep us safe that's okay and right there you've engaged in, in an infantilizing relationship you've become an infant the government's treating you like a child it's it's a nurturing, they're treating you like a child but not in a patronising way. It's in a, I'm going to cuddle you and keep you safe way. Another really fucked up thing, which we, we sh- as people, we, we really shouldn't. Like, what one thing with post, post-Britain independent Ireland is we, as a culture, valorised the doctor the teacher and the priest these were the three most important unquestionable uh, cornerstones of Irish society post 1922 it's we we it's arse licking we used we as a society licked the arses of priests teachers and doctors if an Irish family had a good room in their house no one was allowed into the good room unless the priest, the doctor, or the school teacher visited. And you would never question these people, you'd be exceptionally nice to them, and you view them as, as better than you, and whatever information they tell you, that's the truth. And that's an Irish cultural thing, that's, that's post-colonial but very Catholic. And for a brief period of a month, we started to do that with the government. Like, Fine Gael who were the the caretaker government during the coronavirus crisis, had their worst ever election just weeks beforehand. People were ready to get them the fuck out. We wanted a left government. Then coronavirus happens. Leo, our Taoiseach, is is a doctor. And all of a sudden, his approval rating at the moment is 75%. All of a sudden, the whole country started licking Fianna Gael's arses. If you were to criticise the government, I'm talking mid-April, if you criticise the government in any way, 
if you brought up the fact that they support something like direct provision, that they're responsible for the homeless crisis, people would have killed you. There was murder online. I was afraid to say it myself. People would come right in and go, how dare you say that about their government? They're doing the best. They're supporting the nurses. And we allowed ourselves to be infantilised by the priest, the doctor and the teacher once again for a short amount of time. And another really odd thing is how the government would engage in a dialogue with the people whereby it's a it's a reward system. It was like they were genuinely saying to us, if, if you be good, they were talking about, we say, the phases of how the country would reopen. And the contract that they engaged in with, it, with us was, if you're good boys and girls, we might move to this stage, but we're not sure yet. You'll have to be very good boys and girls. Like just this morning, Leo Radker came out with this plan for the arts and theatres and, and what's going to happen as the phases unroll and can we go to gigs and can we have large gatherings. And his quote is like straight up the leader of the country to the people. But you know, if things continue to go the right direction and if the virus stays suppressed, I think we, we could see some smaller outdoor mass gatherings in September. Maybe outdoor cultural events of a few thousand people. Maybe three, four, five thousand, but unlikely more than that. And it's not fully up front. It's as if he already knows what's going to happen, but it's on condition that you behave yourself, which is how a parent lovingly talks to a child and the child engages in that game. It's a fucking game. It's like, Leo, can you tell us, man? You're the t- I'm an adult, you're an adult, you're the Taoiseach. Do you think we're going to have gigs in August do you think do you think maybe a festival do you think so and instead of him giving an adult response he's basically said I don't know but a little birdie told me that there's be, there'll be sweets tomorrow if you go to bed early that's what it is it's there'll be sweets there might be some sweets tomorrow a little birdie told me we all remember that from being kids a little birdie told me that something good might happen if you behave yourself if behave yourself now or Santi won't bring you presents it's a, a contract of infantilizing and we're not patronized or insulted by it we're actually soothed by it we want that relationship and it's the same relationship we had with the priest the same relationship we had with the doctor and the school teacher traditionally I'll tell you what it also fucking is do you remember when you were a child And every so often, maybe once every three months, the priest would visit your classroom. And when the priest, the parish priest, came to your classroom, the best part was you fucking knew you were getting a half day. You knew that that priest would give you a half day. And the teacher knew that the priest would give you a half day. But it was never said. And you'd have this arrangement in class that the priest is coming on Friday. And the teacher would go, he might give you a half day, I don't know. Now, if you behave yourselves, you know, it might go ahead. But if you don't behave yourselves, I'm going to have to tell the priest and then he won't give you a half day. So then you behave yourself all week. The half day is coming. We know it's fucking coming. The priest has got it decided. The, the principal has it decided. But you behave yourself all week and the priest comes and then you get your half day. That's what, that's the Irish response to coronavirus. It's the priest comes into the classroom and you get the half day and no one's being treated like an adult. 
it's a, it's you're handing all your power over to somebody and engaging in quite a toxic infantilized relationship now I'm not saying this to critique or to say don't listen to the fucking government this isn't me it seems to, it's working it's working we flatten the fucking curve we seem to be comfortable with it I'd rather see a bit more people giving out about fucking direct provision and not completely licking the arses of Fina Gale. But like, it's short term. It's short term and it's it's a little bit manipulative. When I started the podcast, I spoke about the stages of grief and how we're thrust into this phase where you just cope and the reason I, w- I didn't want to speak about mental health and go introspective is I felt it would have been unsafe. But in, in our vulnerability, under normal circumstances, when are we ever going to lick the government's arse like that and allow them to say, oh, you'll be a good little boy now and we'll reward you. We, we, you'll get some sweeties later. if we, w- we wouldn't stand for that normally. But in our state of fear and shock and grief the government found this strange way of communicating with us which went back to the church it went back a few years to a more vulnerable time we regressed we we regressed culturally just like as a human in times of stress you can regress to childhood we culturally regressed to a time of childhood and then infantilized ourselves and engaged in quite um, a toxic... I say it's toxic because it's dysfunctional. You're not holding the government to account. You're not holding yourself to account. You're allowing yourself to be infantilized. But as we move now to the stage of coronavirus grief where it's a stage of acceptance, that shit's going to fall. We're not going to allow that anymore the relationship will change, especially now with the new formation of government. And chickens are going to come home to roost from. People are going to get angry and start asking questions. And people require and want more transparency. The government got away with... They got away with a lack of transparency. They got away with going, we do have the answers, but we're going to hold them back for your own good because you're just a little... You're just a little child and it'll hurt you. This information will hurt you. Instead of us going, no, we're fucking adults. We want to know and we're responsible. And you should tell us, how did it end up in nursing homes? What about direct provision? All these questions. So that's my that's my hot take. That's my hot take around coronavirus, around the current zeitgeist, what I think is happening. And something I wanted to share with you. Um, I think next week, I think if you want it next week, I'll do a mental health podcast. What I was thinking of doing is telling you kind of a unified model that I use for my own mental health, which incorporates bits of CBT, existentialism and transaction analysis and a few other bits and try and unify it into one theory, which I haven't really done yet, but that's my practice. That's how I live my life. So, best luck to you. I hope you enjoyed this. Mind yourself. Be compassionate to yourself. Be compassionate to your neighbour. Listen to the experts, alright? Listen to the fucking experts. Listen to the scientists. Listen to the people in... The professors of science. 
in Ireland, listen to the, the, the World Health Organization, right? That's whoever is saying here is some evidence and here is a paper. That's who you listen to. Another thing the government has done is that with the wearing of face masks, they haven't told us to wear face masks. They've asked us nicely in a passive aggressive way. They've said, oh, wouldn't it be lovely if you wore face masks? That'd be very nice. It'd be very disappointing if you didn't. Instead of going, hold on a second, you're an adult. Now, we have some evidence here, and so do other countries, that if you don't wear a face mask, and if everyone if everyone doesn't wear a face mask, it can actually be quite dangerous. That's the adult way to do it. Government hasn't done that. But as an adult, I'm an adult. I'm looking at what experts are saying. So I'm wearing a fucking face mask. Other people aren't. This isn't going to work unless everyone everyone has to wear a face mask. It's underpants. Alright? There is... If you don't want to get piss on the floor of Aldi, wear underpants. If everyone's wearing underpants, and I'm not, and I get, have piss coming out of me, then people are going to fall over. doesn't matter how many underpants they're wearing. All it takes is my piss to get onto the floor of Aldi, and then they slip up. And it's the exact same thing with coronavirus. Everyone in the supermarket can be wearing a mask. And if one person walks in and they're not, and they happen to be asymptomatic and carrying, that one person can do a lot of damage. So we need to normalise the wearing of face masks and look at the evidence behind it and look at the evidence of, of how it's helping to flatten the curve and how it's been done for years in Asian countries. For fucking years. All right, Yurt. Catch me on Twitch during the week or I'll see you next week if you just want to listen to the podcast, all right? God bless. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.